I'm Charlie Melcher, founder of The Future of Storytelling, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the FOSS podcast. While in London recently, I had the opportunity to meet with James Seeger and Oliver Lansley, the creative and artistic directors of UK-based theatre company Les Enfants Terribles. James and Oliver founded the company in 2002 and have since created numerous critically acclaimed traditional and immersive theatre productions. Their best-known immersive project, Alice's Adventures Underground, was nominated for an Olivier Award during its initial run in 2015, revived in 2017 in London again, and then traveled to Shanghai, China for an additional two years. The show is now returning to London to an all-new space that will finally be its permanent home set to open in 2024. What separates Les Enfants Terribles from other immersive theater makers is that they've not only created engaging story experiences, but also devised complex systems and strategies to run them efficiently. Alice's Adventures Underground is a well-oiled machine that operates with incredible precision and economy while maintaining the high touch that makes immersive theater so special. With this show, James and Oliver have found a model that allows an experience to be both emotionally powerful and economically successful. Something that immersive theater really needs to be able to grow. Please join me in welcoming James Seeger and Oliver Lansley to the FOSS podcast. James, Ollie, welcome to the Future of Storytelling podcast. Such a delight to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great. Thank you very much for having us. So I think we should just start this officially with me raising a pint. <laughs> Cheers. Here, here. Cheers. Uh, so we're here in London, and you've just given me this extraordinary behind-the-scenes tour of your new immersive venue. And I'm just blown away. Even though it's still mostly under construction, you can just see the level of detail and thought and planning and so much work that's gone into this even to get to where we are. Let me ask you to tell us about the show that you're building and how this space came about. Sure. So this show is Alice's Adventures Underground. Uh, it first premiered in 2015 in London, and it came from the back of Ollie and I wanting to get into immersive theatre, but no one was really using that word back then in 2013 and 2014. But essentially, we were seeing immersive shows. And for us, we were getting a bit frustrated with, with shows that we were, we were seeing because for us, it was missing kind of narrative and there were too many people. Uh, you were missing things. And, and there were some amazing experiences out there. But for us, we felt we wanted to add something. We wanted to have story at the forefront of immersive theatre. So we we started to think about what would make a good immersive show and I think that's a crucial thing to think about because nowadays there's a lot of immersive shows out there but sometimes I think that is a question that you do have to ask why should it be immersive well what world 
would you like to go to yeah. and disappear into? Absolutely. And um, we looked at one property and we couldn't really get the rights to it. And uh, we were a little bit gutted with that, with that one property that's very well known. But then we thought, well, you know what, what else is out there? And I, and I think it was Anthony, actually, who's a co-writer with Ollie. He said, have you guys thought about Alice in Wonderland? And that that is very... Very us, I suppose, as a theatre company. And we thought, obviously, that would be a great immersive show. And to Ollie's point, it's a world. And it kind of started from there, didn't it? And, you know, going into the idea of going to Wonderland, actually, you know, Alice in Wonderland is, is a really perfect starting place because it's very modular anyway as a, as a work. It's a kind of a series of sketches and ideas and characters. So it, it suited itself to what we were doing. We actually wrote an initial script, which we did a read-through of. Do you remember that? Do you remember? We did a, we, did, we got a bunch of actors and we did a, a read-through of it. And it was kind of bizarre. And then, but we, we sort of came away from it going, there's something that doesn't quite feel right about the show that we want to make. And we came away from that initial discussion and we cut Alice <laughs> from Alice in Wonderland. I remember that. Because basically we realised, you know, Alice, as a, in a book, Alice is your, you know, cipher, is your, is, your, is your way to get into the story. But what we wanted to do was allow our audience to be Alice. And you come into Lewis's Carol's study, Alice appears in the mirror and she takes you into Wonderland. But once you go into Wonderland, you get to choose eat me or drink me and then you're split into two. So it's an initial audience of 60, you get split into two. And then from there, everyone is assigned a card, essentially. So every audience member is a playing card. And whichever card you get assigned will dictate your journey on the space. And also all the, all the suits have different characteristics. And, you know, so there's, there's this whole, you know, world that you get brought into. But... That happens, you know, again, to get the numbers through, you have 60 people every 15 minutes. And then you have 30-plus actors. And so you, and they're all on their own tracks. So you've got audience one going through, and then 15 minutes, the next audience come in. So you've got, at any one time, you might have two or three or four audiences in the space, all at different parts of their journeys. And then you've got all these different actors all playing. And this is the thing that I think is one of the craziest things for people watching the show is so you might see a character in the first five minutes of your show and you'll talk to them for two minutes and then in you know in the middle of the show you'll meet that character again and they'll have another interaction for a minute or two and then right at the end of the show you will see that character again and they'll have a, another interaction the actors are on this constant 15 minute loop whereas the audience can go through this journey and then see them at the different points in their story but in the meantime the actors are then talking to audience number three or audience number seven or audience number one and you know there's this crazy scene right at the end of the show which is the court case at the end of Alice in Wonderland where we have all of these characters popping in and running up and turning up in the court and it's just insane because you literally have actors running from their sets across the whole building, going, <laughs> running through Wonderland, getting in, popping up, doing their kind of 30-second moment in the court, ducking down and then rushing back to where they go. So it's the backstage show is probably as interesting, as exciting as what the audience actually get to see. What makes something uniquely a Les Enfants Terribles show? 
Good question. I, I mean, it, it sounds a little bit big-headed or a bit verbose, but I, I, because we've been trying to ask this question for about 21 years, and only in the last year I've probably thought about it, because I got a little bit worried, to be totally honest with you, that when we created what Ali was saying, this the, the mechanics behind Alice, that other people would copy it, I suppose, and, and use this very unique thing, because in 2015, no one in the world had ever done this time code and system of a show to what Ollie was saying earlier about how the actors get to one place and how the audience move, and essentially the whole show is run, run on a computer, but the system is called a time code. So basically, that every single cue in the show or in different, every different spaces, so, so there's around 40 different sets and spaces and 35 different actors in every lighting cue, every sound cue, every sound effect, every piece of music is all triggered by the time code. And so the time code starts at the beginning of the show and it finishes at the end. It runs all 15 shows. So you could have no actors in there and nothing in there and it would still be happening. And that, again, I think it's one cue every seven seconds yep. or seven cues every second. I can't remember which one. Um, yeah. So for many years, I, you know, because that was very unique to our immersive blend of theatre, and I thought, well, maybe that sums us up. But then when other, I guess, companies were doing it and fair play to them doing that, they weren't doing what we were doing. And I guess the essence of what we are is, is I guess, Holly and I as creators, as directors and, and as writers we work with some amazing designers and, and you could say, you know, on looking at it from afar, you know, our style is quite gothic, um, you know, Tim Burton-esque, playful, uh, entertaining, lots of music, lots of puppets, lots of physicality. Uh, but, but essentially what we are as a theatre company is story-led, story-driven. You know, whether we do an immersive show, an outdoor show, uh, a stage show, you, you can still see similarities between a stage show and immersive show because our importance is is on the storytelling and and we as a theater company are storytelling but i think that's what sums us up our shows the audience is always part of our shows even if it's a stage show and it's on a stage we nearly always break the fourth wall we we engage with the audience and we kind of have a relationship with them and i think that's at the heart of what we do and then so obviously when you then get into the world of immersive that is opened up onto a whole new level and so you are the protagonist as you know as we said like you are Alice in Alice in Wonderland what we really try and do is curate an experience which will feel completely unique to every individual audience member but will feel hopefully equal to all the other audience members we don't want one person to have the best night of their life and the other person to go, oh, I spent two hours in an empty room and I couldn't find anyone, I didn't find any actors. Like, we want to make sure that we hold everyone's hand and, and make sure that everyone gets out of the show what they came to get from it. Right. I read one review that said that, quote, you're a company very adept at showing how physicalized storytelling is at the heart of some of the best theatre around. And I love that expression of physicalized storytelling. And I wonder, can you explain? We try and make our work really three-dimensional. And, you know, I, I, I sort of stopped myself from saying the word immersive then because it's so overused and it, and it means so many different things to so many people. But I do think immersive is a sort of appropriate word for what we do. We want you to be able to come into our shows and disappear into another world. Mm -hmm 
and feel it on every level. And that's why there's so many things in our shows, whether it's live music or puppetry or physicality or storytelling. It's very, you know, all of it is serving the story. And I think the key to that sense of physicalized storytelling, I suppose, is, is trying to make what we do feel really tangible. And I think we always address the fact that our shows are you know, are theatrical. I know that sounds a bit strange, but, it, you know, we embrace the theatricality of the world. I think every show that we have ever done is almost like a show backstage as it is in front of the stage and that is because everyone has to pick this up a prop and, and it's very choreographed like that in terms of puppets or instruments or, or whatever we use to tell the story it, it, we, we throw it all out there and I think that's where the choreography and the movement and the physicalized nature of who we are comes from I think but you're also giving that physicality to the audience Right, so they're getting to experience it in a multi-sensorial way, you know, in a way that's more emotional and powerful because they're living it. Yeah, sight, sound, touch, smell, taste. You know, again, and I think that's the magic of immersive and world building. If you create a world, like you want to be able to play in it and you want to be able to like influence it, and um, and there is something about that when you do it well that you experience it differently as a human because your your body is experiencing it in the same way as your mind is under your fingernails you know and I think that is that changes the way that you interact with with stories I think if you think about the way that we consume media whether it's computer games which are very much about you being at the heart of these stories but even in you know even in the way that we experience cinema and music and television you know cinema uh, you know now it, if you if you go to the cinema it's, it's about the experience it's about the kind of surround sound and the IMAX screens and the popcorn or television is now you you know it's not something that you're not passive you have all of these things at your fingertips and you can choose what experience you want you know you don't have to wait for something to be on a certain network at a certain time now you are the in control it's the same with music you know streaming but also I think one of the key things is we do it in our own lives in social media we we curate our own stories and our own avatars in ways that you know, previous generations never had. And you can see, you go on Twitter or you go on Instagram or you go on TikTok, everybody wants to be the protagonist of their own story these days. And I think that is really the heart of why Immersive has blown up the way that it has. You are so singing my tune. <laughs> That's something that I talk a lot about in a repeat theme in this podcast and at Future of Storytelling in general. I'm I really do believe we've entered this age where people no longer want to be passive consumers. They want to be active participants. They want to be co-creators. They want to be heroes in their own yeah. adventures. Just another way of saying what you just said. Yeah. So the complexity of being able to provide that kind of bespoke and, and carefully curated or choreographed experience for 60 people at a time and then put another 60 people through 15 minutes later, that's a whole other level. Like, it's a different part of the brain, frankly, than the one that's doing the puppetry mm. or the choreography or the yeah. writing. Talk about how you developed that piece of it and, and, and give me some numbers. Like, James, how many people can go through the show in a day? On a normal day, it's uh, 660. 
on a Saturday and a Thursday, we have an extra six entries. So that boosts up numbers. But then also, which we've not talked about, we, we also have another <laughs> version of the show uh, for kids called Adventures in Wonderland, mm. which is uh, a, a lot uh, <laughs> more simple, I suppose, but uh, a different version of the show for kids between the ages of like four and, and nine. And we have that on weekends, so Saturday and Sundays, and there are like six entries, uh, around about the same type of audience, number of audience, 60. And then on the school holidays, that's every single day day so on a Saturday we could have like 1,400 people on a Saturday every Saturday so let me just understand this correctly so for the uh, children's show yeah it's it's shorter yes but you still take 60 people at a time yeah and it's the same set and cast no different cast same set, completely different uh, story. Slightly less intimidating yeah. version of Wonderland. <laughs> yeah. And when we say our, the, the other, sh the, you know, Alice Ventures Underground is, is adult, it's not adult in terms of content, but of course, I think, I think in the UK and I think in the US, it, this is a type of property that is applicable to all. But I think when we started developing this, you know, the, the, there's a lot of maths behind it and there's a lot of logistics behind it, but the audience are never aware of this and nor should they be. Right. Um, you know, the, it all started from thinking, we want this show to be intimate and we also want a story. Again, one of our, you know, if, if, if our first biggest thing was realising that we needed to take the protagonist out of our show to allow the audience to become the protagonist. The second biggest lesson, I think, was understanding in immersive theatre what the audience don't get to see is as important as what they do get to mm, see. I love that. And, like, you know, because that's how a world works. You don't see everything in the world, you know. Right. You have your journey and then you come into the bar and you meet your friend who went off on a different path and they're like... Oh my God! Did you see the frog? And or did you see that room where it rained? Or did you see the caterpillar and the great projection stuff? And everyone's like, "No, I didn't see that." How do you? And you realise actually the joy in 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 it is is creating a world that feels like it exists whether you are there or not. And of course, it now with that has the fringe benefit of people wanting to come back and do it more than once, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we you get people. I think the the main thing for me is that. Immersive theatre is asking the question, you know, who are you in this world? Like, what is what is your role? What is your reason? And and we, every time we've brought this show back, we've really asked ourselves that question. What what does it mean to be a diamond or a heart? And and I think every time it's like really interrogating that. So people really affiliate themselves to to diamonds or, or, or clubs or whoever they are in this show, and that's great because then then there is this camaraderie, but there's also this kind of rivalry with when they see the space or. or, or clubs or whatever but also as you say they think that's amazing journey what's it like if i come back and well, do the also, other one but the other thing that we haven't talked about <laughs> again is that all of our actors play roughly six different characters each partly because we were worried we would send them insane if we if they had to play the same characters 15 times a night every single night so basically you have these teams of actors and every night they rotate but so for example in the tea party there'll be a pool of six hatters, six hares, six dormice, and they all rotate. Once we tried to get a mathematician to figure out the probability of being able to see the same show twice, and he couldn't figure it out, because basically every single show, even if you go on exactly the same route, 
even if you had the exact same card, you're not going to see the same performances from the same actors. So, you, you know, your tea party is going to be completely different with it will have this hatter, this hair, and it's almost impossible to see the same show twice. And that's the thing in theatre, you know, if you're going to do a show in the West End for a year or, you know, people do it for, for longer than that, you are doing the same scene over and over and again. And, and actually, weirdly, for, for Alice, you're, it's very rare that you're going to do the same scene with the same people in the same place. And not to mention the fact that every single audience member is going to bring something to that scene as well, and they're going to react differently. And so it is, it is a really strange, <laughs> organic, amorphous beast of a show. So tell me about this new space. I mean, this is, you said it was 60,000 square feet that you've That's taken. Right. That's a lot of space for a production. Yes. And you also mentioned you have a 15-year lease. Yes. Those are two, like, very threatening things for most people <laughs> in theater. How did you get comfortable taking that on? I think uh, we were very frustrated that when we did the show before, we only had uh, the residency for six months and the show sold out, so it sold really well. And, and then we had to leave and we were like, this is crazy, why are we, why are we leaving? So when we licensed it to China and China did it for two years, we thought you know what, there is scope to do this. So after it ran for two years there, we, we started looking for spaces in London, and it's quite hard in any major city to find that amount of space in a really good location. This space used to be where the Eurostar ran from uh, in London. When they moved it over to another station, King's Cross, the space has been completely empty, and we knew they were redeveloping it. But because it was an underground car park, when people used to park their cars and get on the train to go to France, the car park was down there. There's lots of pillars. And for a lot of people, I think, who looked at the space, that was an obstacle. But then for us, it was like, well, actually, we can use these pillars to form the rooms. And the landlord wanted to put something that was entertainment. This whole development, the, the top level is shops and then the, the ground floor or first floor is uh, restaurants and, and bars, and then the, this basement that we've got, you know, they didn't know what to do with it, but they wanted entertainment. They wanted something different. And they knew about our show, because it's very close to where the vaults was, and uh, someone showed me it, and I looked around and I thought, you know what, this could work. I think it's reflective also of our ambition for the the Labyrinth project, which is the, the venue's called, called Labyrinth, and... Also, what we believe can be the next transition in the world of immersive theatre, which is, you know, we are looking at this as, as the, the West End or the Broadway of immersive theatre. We want to make a show that can compete with The Lion King or Matilda or whatever it is. You know, as we've said before, we, we will be working our butts off to make sure that everyone gets their money's worth. And I think that is the, the key to kind of going, how do we compete on a level where this can hopefully remain open for years? And we touched on it before, you know, in terms of audiences have changed. You know, audiences want to be at the forefront of their own experience and adventures, as we said. So we, we found that in 2015, we had so many non-theatre goers come to see the show. And that was like, wow, this is amazing. And I, and I think surely that is the golden ticket in the theatre industry, to attract people who aren't into theatre to come and see theatre. Whether the, our show is deemed as theatre or as an experience, that's fine. But, but I think nowadays everyone is much more, audiences have changed, as we've said, and, and that 
speaks to the popularity of immersive and, and speaks to the popularity of people wanting to try something a little bit different, which is cool. Talk to me, though, about the financial burden. 15-year lease is, yeah. is scary. Yes, it is. And I, I think, you know, Ollie, Ollie alluded to it before, and I don't, I don't mind sharing because I think we did a, a, an opinion piece in the Stage newspaper, which is a UK paper that, that talks to the industry, but they uh, talk to you about your, your budgets. And the budget in, in 2015 on the show was £600,000, you know, mm. just over half a million, a lot, yeah. uh, which for us is, is, at that time, was massive. And, and we, as a company back then, were still raising the money, like, on press night. So the budget in 2017 was double what it was in 2015. We realized we wanted to up things and, and production values and change the show, but also things change. Since the pandemic, and especially, well, I think this is worldwide. I mean, we, we, you know, I was speaking to some people in America as well, and they say, yeah, this is happening over here. Costs are, are, are crazy crazy right now you know over in the uk wood for example is double the price that it was three years ago and so the budget has escalated since things like brexit over here and since you know european issues war in ukraine all these things have, have contributed to to the budget being quite high also we're trying to build a venue you know like it was a car park and, yes. and we're turning it into a venue that hopefully can run for 15 plus years but that that is plumbing and air conditioning yeah. and floors and which we didn't have to do before and everything and, and what did you you didn't say but what is the, <laughs> what, what is the budget now yeah. well it's uh i'd say it's it's in the region of about 10 million so it's not just the show. So obviously, when we did the show before, we were just dry hiring uh, the vaults. So it had all the infrastructure in there. We did have to put air conditioning, you know, sprinkler systems, all this into a venue because we're thinking long term, and we want Alice to be as here as long as possible. But um, and we're you know, building, yeah. I mean, that's the difference. If you're if you're building a show that you know is going to close in six months or one that you're trying to keep open, like you have to invest, have a different quality of build. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's such a merging of the craft of theater with operational excellence or innovation because you're so hands-on, literally from writing it to directing it to producing it, have been able to solve sort of for both of those challenges. And, and that's what's needed to be able to get to an immersive theater experience that's so intimate and personalized and the audience is held, but to do it at scale where it can actually be profitable and you can solve that problem of throughput, which everyone struggles so terribly with. Do you agree? How is it that you guys have been able to sort of solve for both sides? It's just our upbringing. When I say upbringing, I mean theater upbringing at the Edinburgh Fringe. The theatre company started at the Edinburgh Fringe, and I don't know whether people have been there, but it's an amazing uh, experience, amazing festival, the biggest festival in the world. Very um, immersive. Yeah, <laughs> but we started doing shows there. So Ollie had this crazy idea to put on a show at the Edinburgh Fringe, and he just grabbed me and some other friends, and we put on a show there 21 years ago. But then we had the thirst for it, and uh, then we were like, let's go back and do another show. And we're like, really? Well, okay. And then, you know, all friends, and we were just, all digging in deep of like you know writing directing acting you know both of us we're, we're doing all of that sometimes both of us were in the show as actors uh or directors you have to do everything you have to yeah. do the fly 
wiring and yeah. the PR and the marketing so, and the lighting design and the sound design yeah. and the, everything. Yeah. And, and that was our, our education, our learning to be producers. So we became producers without realising it. Sometimes people, young people or anyone say, what does a producer do? And you're like, well, the answer is everything, really. But um, it, it... They make we, things happen. Yeah, and it's like suddenly we realised... Only after about seven years of doing this up in Edinburgh, oh, we're producers. It was that late. A lot of producers, the way they produce is go, I need this thing done. Who's the best, which is usually the most expensive person that does this thing, let's hire them. <laughs> <laughs> and that can work. But when you are doing something which is so holistic and interconnected, Hiring individual people who do these things in, you know, in a vacuum or, or certainly in, in the world of conventional theatre and like, this is how we do this and this is how it works and this is how this works is not always the best way to do things when you're, when you're creating something that is different and is new and you need to be able to explore other avenues and think outside the box and sometimes do things in a way that isn't, the way that it normally but gets done. I think we've always had an understanding from Edinburgh that if that show financially didn't work, then game over. We wouldn't be doing it next year. Right. And and we've just known that, even subconsciously, in creating our immersive shows and Alice of, like, when we were co-producing this show, we were like, okay, we've got 60 people in, we're like, well, we need more than that. We just know, because if it didn't work financially, we wouldn't be able to... Yeah, we've never had, like, those... We've never had rich patrons. We've never been lucky enough to be one of those theatre no. companies where, which has kind of rich people who love what they do and just pays for it, and, you know, whether it, whether it works or not. <laughs> we've always had to, like, scrape to find the money and go, the money that you make from show A pays for show be and then you hope to make a little bit more and then that pays for the next show so I think we'd have really enjoyed having rich patrons giving yeah. us a, but we would be very different artists if that had happened but we probably have less grey hair even though this seems to be a tremendous focus it's not the only thing that you're working on right you both have active lives outside of this as well the thing that drives us is just the desire to do it and the, you know, the interest in telling stories, you know, like as a theatre company, we're still, you know, we still make stage shows. We've got a stage show opening just around the corner on the South Bank, uh, which is a musical called The House with Chicken Legs based on a best-selling book. And that is, you know, that is a proper stage musical Proper. <laughs> you know, old school. Old yeah. school on a stage, you know, um, <laughs> You know, we got to to do that recently and we were, you know, sitting there in a theatre being like, oh, God, this is so... Like, there are lights, there are lights and there are things and there's a comfy chairs, like, oh, this is such... God, remember when we just made shows in theatres? Luxury! <laughs> yeah, complete luxury. Um, but then also, we're, you know, we're doing other stuff in the immersive world. We, um, we're, we're doing a show in Vegas, in mm. Las Vegas, which we're going to mm. be... Tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully. I mean, hopefully. We're, we're, we're at that we're, stage of negotiations, we're, we're but it's looking the, very positive. We're in the final stages of, of getting getting that in place. And But if, if that happens, that will happen uh, next year. And again, that becomes about a completely new audience and a completely new experience and going, how do we create something that fits into that world? You know, we're busy, not just on Alice and, and the Labyrinth project, but as Ollie alluded, there's, 
there's lots of little things bubbling. There's lots of exciting things as well of, of like where can immersive theatre go next? And that's exciting for us, not just technology, but in different genres, which we're exploring at the moment. And, and, and also in, in, in America as well, you know, we've, we've done a, only a few kind of pop-up experiences over there. So it's quite exciting to hopefully do this new show in Vegas next year and to do other shows. Also, you know, we need, we need collaborators to help us pay for these crazy expensive shows. So if you want us, we're here, please contact us. We're available for parties and bar mitzvahs. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I can't wait to see what you do next and to come back for the grand opening. By the way, when, when are you scheduled to open here? So we're just confirming those dates, uh, but it looks like the summer next year. It could be slightly ahead. I mean, there's been a lot of complications with turning a car park, uh, an underground car park, into a fully functioning venue with, when it's underground, you know, we're running water and electricity and heating. So there's been a few delays there, but um, big projects I've learned, building projects are sometimes delayed, but it's, it's looking around about the summer time, 2024. Well, we can't wait to uh, go down whatever rabbit holes you, you gentlemen design. <laughs> I just want to say thank you for joining me today, and I'm um, huge fans and look forward to more from Les Enfants Terribles. Oh, thank you thank very, you very much. much. And you say our name much better than either of us. It's been great. Thank you very much. I'm Charlie Melcher, and this has been the Future of Storytelling podcast. Thanks for joining me. We at FOST are dedicated to bringing you the latest innovations in entertainment, technology, media, marketing, and countless other industries where storytelling is key. If you find the podcast to be valuable, please consider subscribing and recommending us to a friend. We'd really appreciate it. We also have a free monthly newsletter, FOST in Thought, and an annual membership program, the FOST Explorers Club. You can learn more about both on our website at fost.org. The FOSS podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partners, Charts and Leisure. I hope to see you again soon for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on. Thank you.